everyone, welcome back to another episode of Adhering Apologetics. Glad you're joining us today. Today I have Dr. Michael Strauss and we're going to be t responding to a video made by the atheist YouTuber Holy Kool-Aid where he says he's debunked the fine-tuning argument. So Dr. Strauss, thank you so much for joining me and how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, this will be really fun. It's the second time you've been on. The first time we did an interview talking about the cosmological argument and fine-tuning. And today we're just going to be looking at a video made by um, an atheist YouTuber um, named Holy Kool-Aid. So before we get into the video, is there anything you want to say about like who you are and what you do, Dr. Strauss, before we get rolling? Uh, sure. Um, I'm a professor of physics at the University of Oklahoma. I do research in experimental particle physics. I currently do my research at a laboratory uh, near Geneva, Switzerland called CERN. And my latest research has been studying the properties of the Higgs boson, which was a particle uh, predicted in the early 1960s and discovered by our collaboration, the Atlas experiment in 2012. Yeah, it's super exciting and lots of fun. And today we're not going to be looking, at, unfortunately, at the research, um, but just a different topic related to the fine-tuning argument. Um, so before we get into this video, Dr. Strauss, do you have any like preliminary thoughts or things you want to say um, before we get into this? Uh, no, I was unaware of the person named uh, nicknamed Holy Kool-Aid, unaware of this video till you shared it with me. Um, I watched it. Um, I actually found it quite um, full of a lot of misinformation, a lot of naive statements, a lot of unfounded assumptions, a lot of logical flaws. So I'm glad that uh, we can sit and talk about it because there are a lot of likes on the video. So, so it's clear that people are persuaded by this kind of thing. But it, to, from my perspective, it doesn't take much investigation to actually show some of the major flaws and problems with the kind of reasoning in the video. And that's what we'll talk about today. Yeah, I'm super pumped. And it's exciting because this video has hundreds of thousands of views. Um, so I'm glad to get a physicist like yourself who's qualified to kind of look at um, this video and what's going on. So without any further ado, I'm going to pull up the video. We're going to have short clips that we play and then just kind of talk about it and just go through it. And it should be a lot of fun. So here's the first clip where he's just going to kind of introduce the argument. It goes something like this. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. So, Dr. Strauss, I'm curious, just like here, do you think he does a good job of like presenting the argument? Is there anything you would want to add with regards to the fine-tuning argument? Yeah, I mean, he basically plays clips from people who have promoted the fine-tuning argument, and the clips are a good representation of the kinds of arguments people make. So I think that, you know, he's fairly presented the kinds of things that not just theists, but even um, uh, those who study these kinds of parameters have, have stated. I mean, these the fine-tuning of these parameters is not something developed by theists. It's developed in physics articles and Businesses have discovered them. So yeah, I think he, he does a fair job, although the clips he plays are certainly from those who are promoting it from a theistic worldview. Hmm. I'm super, I'm just curious before we get into this next clip, how long is like, in terms of like the journal articles and such, how long has it been since like the first articles talking about like this fine tuning? Like when was the first articles and such going on that kind of talked about the fine tuning argument? 
I think since I think the anthropic principle was proposed like in the 60s or something. So these articles have been around for a long time. And the more we discover things, actually, the more fine tuned the universe appears. Hmm. That's super cool. All right. We're going to go into our next clip where it's going to talk about um, the objection that the planet is mostly just lifeless or the, not the planet, the universe is mostly lifeless. Now, most of the universe is a dangerous vacuum that's either scorching hot or ice cold. And with no air to breathe, we would die in seconds. In fact, 99.999 ad nauseum percent of the universe is not suitable for human life. And it took us billions of years to evolve and adapt to this narrow corner of it. So to say that the universe is fine-tuned for life is like saying that the Sydney Opera House was fine-tuned for the speck of mold growing on the crumb of cheese that fell from a lady's pocket five minutes ago. Allow me... So what do you think here, Dr. Strauss? This is probably his first critique in this video in the fine-tuning argument where he talks about how like the universe is just lifeless um, for the most part. So what's, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is a common misconception that if much of the universe can't support life, then in fact the universe isn't fine-tuned for life. But it's making so many assumptions. For one, it's making an assumption that it understands that if there is supposed to be life, let's say the universe is designed for life, then that the rest of the universe has no function. But that's just not true. In order to get a planet with life on it, you basically need the rest of the universe. You need to have the right number of supernovas exploding in the right range around a planet so that you can create the heavy elements needed. You need the right large-scale structure of the universe, actually. Um, the analogy I give is that um, I grew up watching humans go to the moon. And they built the largest rocket ever, built by humans, the most powerful one, the Saturn V rocket. And out of that whole giant rocket that was huge, number of stories tall, there was a space about the size of a small car that could support life. And, and the only space in that whole rocket that could support life was a little tiny piece at the very top. So are you saying the whole Saturn V rocket is not designed for life because only a tiny part can support life? Of course not. The rest all has a function and the rest is actually necessary. And when you understand what it takes to create a single planet that can support life and start to do look into the parameters of the necessary heavy elements, the necessary uh, radiation and lack of radiation and, and mass density of the universe, you realize that the rest needs to be there or you can't have a single planet. And this is just a really naive statement that the universe is not designed for life because only a small part of it is. It's like saying the Saturn V isn't designed for life because only a small part of it can support life. Um, and again, you don't have to look much into the literature to realize this. Yeah, it's super helpful. And there's a quote that someone said a while ago. I don't know where I heard the first time, but it says something just like the lines of what you were saying um, here, Dr. Strauss, where it's like, sure, like 99.99% of the universe maybe doesn't contain life, but the universe is 100% life permitting, which has some weight to the fine tuning argument. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Right. And again, he, he's assuming that he understands the purpose of whoever designed the universe that would again be like looking at a, a rocket ship that has a small part that can support life and say well their purpose must have been life so the whole thing must have to support life it's just a crazy argument and it doesn't understand what it takes to create a planet like the earth if you wanted to start the laws of physics that we have and you wanted to create a single planet like the earth you have to have the right mass density and the right expansion rate and this is about the smallest universe you can make 
and create a single planet with life. It's just like the Saturn V was the smallest rocket you could make and send people to the moon. So it, it's just a totally um, argument made out of like human reasoning without any scientific understanding at all. So are you saying that, because this is really interesting, like if we want like like this nat knowable natural order where we have these laws unfolding, um, to have a planet kind of like ours that can contain like life such as ourselves, we're going to need this really big universe. Is that kind of what you're getting at here, Dr. Strauss? Ab absolutely. So in order to have a planet like ours, you have to have the right mass density. We'll talk about that later. And you have to have the right expansion rate of the universe. And it takes about... 9 billion years to create a planet like the Earth. Because when Big Bang started, there was only hydrogen and helium. There were no heavy elements. And stars have a life cycle. So the early stars were just hydrogen and helium. They had to die. And as they died, they create heavy elements. And those heavy elements that were the, the debris from the dying first generation of stars had to form a second generation of stars. And those stars still didn't have enough heavy elements to create a planet like the Earth. Though some of those stars had to die and spew off their debris into the um, universe. And then that debris from the second generation of stars finally has enough iron and silicon and oxygen and carbon to create a planet like the Earth. So given the laws of physics, as we know, it takes nine billion years from a Big Bang to create a planet like the Earth. Since the universe is expanding at the perfect expansion rate over those nine billion years, and since 9 billion years is the shortest amount of time it can take to make a single planet like the Earth, this is the smallest universe you could have and make a single planet like the Earth. And so again, the idea that if there was a designer, all of the universe would be life permitting, well, not would have the, the ability to support life, is just a total misunderstanding of the evolution of the universe, the expansion rate, what it takes to create the heavy elements in the universe, the time it takes, um, and the necessary ingredients. It's just very naive. But it's really commonly, cool. so, so what I see when I watch Holy Kool-Aid is he's basically repeating things that I hear all the time by atheists who haven't done the hard work of studying what's really necessary to create the conditions. They're just spouting off, um, refutations based on kind of like an intuition that isn't based in science at all. That's really interesting. Just thinking about like the science of like, well, we need this like big giant old universe to have a planet like ours. That's really interesting. Um, so we'll get into this next clip right now. Allow me to paint a picture for you of what a universe fine-tuned for life might actually look like. Every star would be surrounded with multiple habitable planets, each in perfect equilibrium, and they wouldn't have shifting tectonic plates causing earthquakes or volcanoes. No dangerously sporadic weather conditions would exist, and we would be impervious to UV radiation if it existed at all. There would be a higher ratio of land to water, and a greater percentage of the water would be drinkable. The requirements for human life wouldn't be so minuscule and tiny. We'd possibly even be able to survive in outer space and explore it with ease. And while this so what do you think here, Dr. Strauss? I just played this clip because it's interesting because he kind of gives his own expectations of like, well, if their universe is fine-tuned, this is what it would look like. Um, so what are your thoughts on his expectations for a fine-tuned universe? Yeah, again, that's like, you know, telling the designer of a car that if I was to build a car, it wouldn't look anything like this. It, it would have nothing but an engine because that's the most important thing or, or something. I don't know. But again, I'm just, I, I watched this part of the video and I was shocked. He knows nothing about what it takes to create a planet like the Earth by mentioning tectonic activity. So 
uh, Peter, uh, Donald, what is it? Donald Brownlee and Peter Ward, or Peter Ward, Donald Brownlee, wrote a book called Rare Earth. And in this book, they talk about what's necessary to create a planet that can support life. And they say one of the things that's most necessary to create a planet that can support life is tectonic activity. In fact, they say tectonic activity is the major driving factor as to why we have liquid water on this planet. And so he quotes tectonic activity as something that shows there must not be a designer. Yet he's totally naive because tectonic activity is actually one of the single most important things if you want to have a planet that can support life and maintain liquid water. And again, you don't have to look very far in the literature to find that. And so as soon as he said that, I go, he has no clue whatsoever as to what is required for a life-giving uh, planet. And in, and in fact, you just said it. His, his whole thing is his idea of what a universe would look like if it was life-permitting. But that's like saying the entire Saturn V should be life-permitting. No, because there's a purpose for the rest of it to that has to give the infrastructure to support where you want life. And that's exactly what we have here. And even things like these natural disasters like tectonic activity and earthquakes. I'm originally from California. I know what earthquakes are. These are actually required in this universe to create a planet like, like the Earth. Now he could say, well, God, he goes on to say, well, God could hold it all together. Well, of course. But now he's again assuming that he understands the purposes of this creator. And that's just crazy because I can't even tell, you know, the motivations for most people around me, much less what a God would be. And so, uh, you know, it, it's just, I was, I was flabbergasted that somebody who's trying to debunk the fine tuning would bring up tectonic activity, which is a major requirement uh, for life. And so it's not a disastrous thing. By the way, most of the problems we have with natural disasters are not because of the disasters themselves. They're because of human greed and human decisions. We could certainly build structures that can stand up to any earthquake, but it costs money. We could build structures that would withstand any major flood um, like they do in the Netherlands, but they don't do in Houston. It just costs money. And I remember when a uh, uh, was it Katrina that went through Houston and flooded it out? And, you know, some scientists from the Netherlands came over and said, look, it's just the way you build. If you build correctly, these natural disasters would not affect your, your lives. Um, but it's that we are greedy. We build in such a way to try to save money and it costs money. And, and beyond that, we actually need these kinds of flooding events, just like we need natural fires in order to um, have a habitable world. Now, again, you could always argue, well, if I was God and made a life-giving universe, every planet would be, you know, life-supporting and all. But that just told, that's saying he understands the purpose of the infrastructure um, mm -hmm. when that's just impossible to do. He, he's playing God by saying, this is how I would do it. Again, all you need is one area that's habitable with the rest of it having a purpose, like a rocket ship and you've said that there's a designer. That's all you need. You don't need every planet being life-giving to have a designer. Mm. That's super great. And just, I'd love to reemphasize the idea that you keep bringing up where every planet doesn't need to like be having life. Like, like this cosmos has a purpose in a sense that like um, we need this giant cosmos to have a planet like ours. And I really want to just like emphasize that because it's, I think it's super important and it's often like left out in this kind of like fine tuning 
um, debate. And then he just talks about, like in this clip, like you said, he talks about evils, which isn't really related to the fine-tuning argument. It's more of like an argument against um, maybe ex existence of God, but it's not really related to like the fine-tuning argument that people like you or um, Luke Barnes or all the other really smart people out there um, are bringing forth. Yep. Um, so this, in so fact, I was going to bring up, um, well, maybe you're going to play it. I don't know if you're going to play this clip on um, the, he said, claims the parameters aren't as narrow as we think they are. I don't know if you're going to have that clip, but, but it, we can comment on that in the future as you go on. Yeah, I think I have most of it um, queued up. I'm going to jump ahead here about 50 seconds um, to where he talks about life adapting to the universe. But if like I skip over what you're thinking, I feel free to add on at any point. Um, but what I'll do now is I'll play this next clip where he talks about um, another common objection where life can just adapt to any universe. But even though it's not fine-tuned for life, the parameters for life aren't nearly as narrow as we once thought. In the 19th century, it was speculated that man could not survive speeds greater than 50 miles per hour. To show just how laughable that assumption is, astronauts on the Apollo 11 reached speeds of 24,790 miles per hour. Creationists think that the window for life is so tiny. But let's take a look at the tardigrade. This little guy can survive temperatures as low as minus 328 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 200 Celsius. And as high as 300 degrees Fahrenheit, or 148.8 Celsius. Radiation? No problemo. They can take doses a thousand times the lethal dose for humans, and can live on in pressures 6,000 times higher than that of our atmosphere. And we've even found other bacteria that can survive in outer space. The fact is, we just don't know what the limits of life are. Sure, we've adapted to this planet, but the requirements for life in other circumstances may be broader than we ever thought possible. If we'd been born in a hotter planet, we would have likely evolved from thermophiles and would have evolved better cooling mechanisms or internal systems that thrive in heat. Would you then say that that planet is so fine-tuned for life? But what about the constants of the universe? Okay, so a lot going on here, Dr. Strauss, and I think the main gist of his argument is, you know, life can just adapt to any universe. Who knows what other kinds of life could exist? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so there, there's so much misinformation here. It's remarkable. So let me address some of it. First of all, he talks about us once thinking we couldn't go fast. I have no idea what that has to do with anything. I think he's trying to make the point that we sometimes think there are narrow parameters when there are large. But it's not, again, he's just spouting information that has no basis. You've already mentioned Luke Barnes. Luke Barnes and Grant Lewis are two um, Australian astrophysicists, and their job is to run computer simulations to determine whether or not life could exist in any possible universe. And they wrote a book saying the parameters are even tinier than you would imagine. So I don't think Holy Kool-Aid does a job where he runs computer simulations to determine what the parameters are necessary for life to exist. But those who do, who are trained in this, say they're more narrow than you can even imagine. And so again, yeah. he's spouting off saying that they're not. And then he, then he brings up the, the tardigrade, which I find hilarious because the tardigrade can't survive. Well, no, let's put it this way. The tardigrade can't live under these extreme conditions. What the tardigrade does is it shuts down its metabolism to survive in these extreme conditions, but it can't live in them. And so if you put a tardigrade at body temperature, half of them will die until the other half finally can shut down their metabolism. They can't live in these extreme conditions. They exist. They survive. They can only live again in very narrow conditions. He's totally naive about what the tardigrade is. He's read that it survives in these conditions. And then he thinks that that means it lives in these conditions, but it doesn't. Like all carbon-based life forms, 
except for bacteria, it has very narrow range in which it can actually live. Just because it can shut its metabolism down and live in a high radiation or, or survive in a high radiation field doesn't mean it can live. And so he's totally, um, you know, misconstruing the, the, survive, the, the livability of the tardigrade. And he thinks that somehow says that life can live everywhere. It can't. Very simple life. I mean, a tardigrade is less than a millimeter long. Very, very simple life can survive in very extreme conditions. We know that. But very few, we, we know how carbon works. We know how carbon life forms work. They don't live. Um, there are some extremophiles, but they're bacteria. They can live in these extreme conditions. But anything more complex than that can't. So, so it's a bait and switch. He's, he's talking about survivability, but then he's calling that livability. And he's just wrong. He needs to go just look up a Wikipedia article on the tardigrade and he'd see how wrong he is. It, it's, it's crazy to me that people watch this and are persuaded that the fine-tuning argument doesn't hold with such misinformation and uninformed information about things like the tardigrade. I think there's a couple of things I thought one is you mentioned um, Durant Lewis, who's the co-author of that Fortunate Universe with Barnes. He's an atheist, um, which is kind of cool because you can see like even some atheists like signing on board to like, yeah, there is this fine tuning. Um, and like he obviously doesn't think it's God, but like he sees he sees this as like an actual thing. And I wonder, like he talks about like these animals that could survive and like these crazy conditions. But like one of the precursors for there being any sort of like animals is like complex molecules existing, which is another like fine tuning constant, I believe, where like. We need like fine tuning to at least some degree to allow for complex molecules to exist in the first place. You mentioned earlier, like um, at the initial conditions of the Big Bang, there's just two elements, and then eventually we get this whole periodic table. Um, so lots of fine tuning going on here, even if um, what he's saying is right still. And you know, there's a lot of issues. Yeah, the, the strong coupling constant, which I or the strength of the strong force, which I actually study in my research, is extremely finely tuned to allow us to have the plethora of elements we have in the periodic table. And if you were to change the strength of the strong coupling by just a little, we, we wouldn't have life um, of any kind in this universe. And so, again, I just, I laugh when he brings up the tardigrade because that's always quoted by atheists, but they don't understand that they're not talking about livability, they're talking about survivability. And those are two very different things. Hmm. Yeah, it's super helpful. Um, so what we're going to do now is now he's going to get into like different kind of like um, examples of fine tuning you brought up and try to like rebut them. Um, so we're going to the first one where he's going to talk about gravity right here. Universe. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. That seems pretty crazy, but here's what an actual physicist has to say about it. There's a famous example that theists like to give, or even cosmologists who haven't thought about it enough, that the expansion rate of the early universe is tuned to within one part in 10 to the 60th. That's the naive estimate back of the envelope, pencil, and paper you would do. But in this case, you can do better. You can go into the equations of general relativity, and there is a correct, rigorous derivation of the probability. And when you ask the same question using the correct equations, you find that the probability is 1. All but a set of measure zero of early universe cosmologies have the right expansion rate to live for a long time and allow life to exist. Or here's another one. Consider the expansion rate of the universe. So um, Holy Cooley brought in an actual physicist in Sean Carroll. So I have an actual physicist in Dr. Michael G. Strauss here. Um, so what are your thoughts on the gravitational constant in fine-tuning? Well, again, I, this is a, actually, to be honest, I'm not sure what either Holy Kool-Aid or Sean Carroll are talking about. 
neither one gives enough information. First of all, the gravitational constant isn't the same as the expansion rate, uh, which, so he talks about the gravitational constant, then he turns to Sean Carroll to talk about the expansion rate. Now they're related in that the amount of matter in the universe um, gives you some idea of the expansion rate. And so uh, I always have heard that the amount of matter in the universe is fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 60th, and that would give the expansion rate. But I don't know what Sean Carroll is talking about when he says it's equal to one. So I actually tried to find any papers at all. I spent about an hour looking for any papers that talked about the um, general relativity giving uh, an expansion rate of one. The, the only thing I know of is that if cosmic inflation occurred, then you would get the right mass density in the universe um, where you'd have a flat universe. And I think you could call that an expansion rate equal to one. The problem with that is that inflation itself has to be finely tuned in order to do that. It has to turn on at the right time. The mechanism has to turn off at the right time. And so, so to be honest, out of everything in that video that I looked at and said, this isn't debunking the fine tuning. This is one part that I looked at and said, I'm not even sure what they're talking about. And Sean Carroll certainly didn't give enough information to, to let me know what paper to look at. But I did look at some of the other papers and we'll talk about those and I'll show you how Holy Kool-Aid has totally misunderstood the paper itself. Um, I have great respect for Sean Carroll. Out of all the atheists I listen to, he is the one that most often has a good understanding of both sides of the discussion and is very thoughtful. Um, and in fact, um, some of the things Sean Carroll has said really point to theism rather than atheism. And so I have a lot of respect for him. I'd love to know what he's talking about, but he didn't give me enough information. I can only assume it's inflation, but, but he knows that inflation has to be fine-tuned to give a expansion rate that we need. So, so I'm not totally sure how to answer this one. There just wasn't enough information to know what they were even talking about. Mm, that's super helpful. And I appreciate your honesty. And I do think like in, for Sean Carroll, like that clip, I recognize that that's his debate with William Lane Craig on God and cosmology. Um, so that's probably why he didn't give all that information. He's trying to get it all. So what I would say is listen to William Lane Craig's rebuttal of that. And you'll probably find the answer. William Lane Craig <laughs> does his homework. He's not always right, but he does his homework. And I bet he had an answer to that, that Holy Kool-Aid didn't want to show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what we'll do now is we're going to this next clip where he's going to talk about the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. One of the worst fine-tuning problems in nature, which is the one I, one of the ones I first proposed, the cosmological constant problem, the dark energy in the universe, the biggest mystery of the universe, that looks like it's incredibly fine-tuned, 120 orders of magnitude, the worst fine-tuning problem in nature. And Dr. King will jump up and say, look, if it was a lot bigger, we wouldn't have humans. Well, it turns out if it was precisely zero, which is a much more natural number, more life would form. What about the electro weak force? So now he gets um, Lawrence Krauss coming in here on uh, the expansion rate thing. And wow, Lawrence Krauss has a lot of energy. Um, but Dr. Strauss, what are your thoughts here? Well, again, we don't totally understand this fine tuning to one to the 120th. And Lawrence Krauss is again, spouting information that he has no real scientific basis. We don't know why it's that number. We don't know what number is needed for the fine tuning. For him to make a blanket statement without any scientific theory behind it, that zero would be a better number is rhetoric. It's posturing. There is no 
literature that says zero would be the number. What he says is it's more natural, but that's the whole point of fine tuning. You get things that aren't natural that are needed and you ask why. So again, I, I, I watch Larry Krauss and he debate and as you say, he's very animated, he gets very excited, but much of what he's saying has no scientific basis to back it up. In fact, if you read his book, A Universe from Nothing, it's almost, well, the part that tries to rebut the origin of the universe is almost completely speculation with no scientific backing whatsoever. And that's again, what he's saying. He's spouting off that zero would be a more natural, better number, but he doesn't know that. Nobody knows that why that number is what it is or what is really required. We just know it can't be too big. We don't know anything about the lower limit. That's crazy. Hmm. That's interesting. And there's so many fun things here to like chew on and think about. And um, yeah, so what we'll do now is we'll go into this next clip where he's going to talk about um, the weak force. Well, it turns out it appears fine-tuned if that's the only value we're permitted to alter. But work by Dr. Harnick and colleagues has demonstrated a perfectly viable universe when allowed to tweak other parameters simultaneously, even in the complete absence of the weak force altogether. And if you're concerned with probability, there's no reason to assume that the universe hasn't been expanding and contracting for eternity, or that our universe isn't one of many. The cosmological natural selection theory by physicists. Um, we'll see. We'll get into the, 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 the cosmological natural selection theory in a second, Dr. Strauss. Um, but what are your thoughts here on the weak force? And maybe yeah, so, um, he doesn't really again, talk about what's I'm, going on. Can you just present it, like just like what the weak force is, just very briefly? Thank you. Well, the weak force is the force that's responsible for radioactive decay, and it's really when he says it's fine tuned, you have to be careful. What is fine tuned is ratios. The ratio of the weak force to another force or another constant or something like that. So I'm glad he showed me the paper. I could actually go read it. So I went and read the paper. Well, what happens if you don't have the weak force? You don't have radioactive decay. So even the authors of the paper admit that would mean that the earth has no nuclear decay inside its core. So there'd be no molten core. And they therefore, there's no plate tectonics. Well, we know how important plate tectonics is. So here's what they write in the paper. They say there'd be no plate tectonics, no molten core in the earth. And then they write, Nevertheless, we do not view this difference with our universe as anything more than a curiosity. Well, of course, they don't understand then what it takes to make a planet like the Earth. So what they're saying is that the basic physics that we understand, not the nuclear physics, not nuclear decay, but certain aspects of chemistry and certain aspects of physics, you can tweak other parameters and still get right. What they readily admit is you completely destroy nuclear decay, which is absolutely necessary to create a planet like the Earth that will stay, um, it, well, the magnetic field of the Earth, which is so important in protecting us from radiation, comes from nuclear decay, the iron core. And for the authors to say, we do not view this difference with our universe as anything more than a curiosity, says the authors have not understood what it takes to make a planet like the Earth. They might understand some of the basic physics of the universe and some of the large scale structure and stuff, but they don't understand the anthropic principle, what it requires to have life to exist. So, so that completely discounts uh, Holy Kool-Aid's whole thesis that you all of a sudden get a universe that's hospitable to life. You all of a sudden get a universe that cannot make a planet that is hospitable to higher life forms if you get rid of the weak force. So if he read the paper instead of, I don't know what he did, read the title or something, then, then he would understand that this paper doesn't support his view. In fact, just the opposite. It puts the silver bullet into his view. So what you're saying then is um, if we talk about like 
trying to say like, well, we don't need like a fine tuned weak force or weak force at all. Like that's going to really hurt our radiometric decay, which is going to hurt our plate tectonics. And if we don't have plate tectonics, like it's going to be like, we're not having like a planet earth with life. It, where it doesn't just hurt plate tectonics. It can, they admit in their paper, it stops plate tectonics. It stops volcanic activity. It, it stops the earth's magnetic field. Everything we need for life, it stops. That's and, and, and again, it's right in the paper. And the authors are not um, people who understand uh, the parameters on Earth that are necessary for life. So they write, this is only a curiosity. But it's not. It's a death knell for any kind of life um, that's carbon-based, that's more complex than bacteria. Completely a death knell. And so the article that he holds up as saying, see, these parameters are not fine-tuned, does completely the opposite. The paper itself shows that if you get rid of the weak force, you get rid of higher life forms in the universe. That's pretty, pretty interesting to think about. Um, pretty amazing. Well, again, I don't um, understand why people watch the video. You don't have to do much research to go find the real answers. Mm -hmm. But people watch it and, and they're brainwashed or something. It's like, well, think, people. Go look up mm -hmm. his resources. Go see what they're really saying. Go look at the counter arguments. See, this is what both, both believers and non-believers do this. They listen to what they want to hear, and they never go look up the counter-arguments. I read as much from atheists as I do from believers, because I want to know what the good arguments are and, and who's telling the truth. And I read, you know, Victor Stenger, who writes that the universe is not fine-tuned, and I read Luke Barnes, who says it is, and it's easy to see who has better arguments. But these people, in my opinion, these people who are watching the video are already convinced that there is no fine-tuning. They're not willing to go look at the real facts behind what he's saying, which are almost zero facts behind what he's saying. He's even pulling things out of context. So, and, and making claims that are, are, are unsupportable, uh, but yet people buy into it. It's kind of unfortunate that, that people don't think a little deeper and go, Read both sides of the equation. Read, read the rebuttals to what people are saying for what you believe and what you don't believe if you want to find the truth. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because it's very easy to kind of get into like, and this can happen to a Christian, it can happen to an atheist, it can happen to anyone where you get into an echo chamber um, where the people you love and the people you listen to, everything they say, that's the truth. And everyone who disagrees with them, they're just crazy, cognitive dissonance, whatever. This can happen to anyone. Um, so I just totally agree with you that like we sh really should be reading and listening to both sides because um, there's a lot to learn from people that we disagree with. And if you don't think that the other side has a good point, you're probably just pretty too far in your, your trench of biases that you, you just aren't seeing it. So, yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, you know, and this is even exacerbated by social media because, mm -hmm. you know, Facebook feeds you what you're going to put the most clicks on. If, you know, if you've watched the social network. Um, on Netflix, you know that you're being fed the same information you already believe, and it just exacerbates the problem. Again, you know, I have a lot of respect for atheists who don't agree with me, but have really thought through the issues, like Sean Carroll and others. But people who just parrot what they've heard without looking at the real facts behind that, I mean, unfortunately, there, as you say, there are believers, Christians, and non-Christians who do that, and I get upset when it comes from both sides. I've heard so mm -hmm. many bad arguments from Christians about why to believe what how nature points to God or science points to God. And again, they don't know what they're talking about because they're just parroting what they've heard from somebody. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we're getting into this next clip here. We have a couple more left, and this is going to be talking about um, cosmological natural selection theory in like potentially um, infinite universes. Physicist Lee Smolin posits that black holes may be the way that universes reproduce, each new universe having slightly different physical constants. If that's the case, and there's an infinite number of universes, then even if the creationist assertions about the improbability of life were true, probability would be irrelevant. Because even if the chance of life was really one in a trillion trillion, then with more than a trillion trillion universes, each with different physical constants, our existence would be a statistical necessity. But rather than our universe being- Okay, so this is really interesting here. I actually hadn't really heard of cos cosmic natural selection theory, what he said here um until this video so what are your thoughts on this clip dr strauss yeah listen to his words lee smolin says that universes may be the result of black holes and if that's the case so this is just mere speculation i mean when you read for instance we talked a lot about luke barnes and grant lewis's book a fortunate universe and they both agree the universe is finely tuned and one is a christian and one is an atheist and the Christian says, I believe it's fine-tuned because there's a creator and designer. And the atheist says, I think it's not fine-tuned, but there's an infinite number of universes. These are the only options that most people hold to today. And he's right. If there are an infinite number of universes or 10 to the 500 as certain string landscapes give you, then we might happen to be in the right one. Now, there's lots of problems with that. I give a talk on, on string theory in and multiverses and the problems, you, you still have to have fine tuning. You, we still don't know necessarily that the landscape of string theory would be um, actualized. There, there's lots of issues there. So again, this is just a wishful thinking speculation. And, and we might never have any evidence for it. In fact, it's highly likely that we'll never have any evidence for multiverses. So this is truly blind faith. Um, I call this atheism of the gaps. Everything we see in this universe looks fine-tuned. But if there's a multiverse, then maybe we just happen to live in the one out of 10 to the 500 universes that can support life with no evidence whatsoever that that's the case. That is taking a gap in our knowledge and filling it with atheism because everything that we know looks like a finely-tuned universe. So Christians are often accused of filling in gaps with God, but this is truly the ultimate atheism of the gaps. To put all your eggs in the basket of a multiverse. And by the way, even if we find a multiverse, depending on what multiverse it is, because there are lots of different models, it may still be fine-tuned, and there may still be no universes that are suitable for life in that model. So again, he's, he's throwing out speculation and putting all his hope in something that is completely, has no evidence for it whatsoever, some, math, some mathematics that might point to it. I will give him that. And that's the reason for fine tuning. But but you all you have to do is listen to his language. You know, it may be, and if it's the case, and is there any evidence that it is? Absolutely not. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I was thinking about um, Richard Swinburne, who talks about like when we're trying to like craft like should we be like a theist or an atheist or something else? Like we want some, like a worldview that has a lot of explanatory power and something that's like very simple. Um, so maybe like even if we granted potentially that a multiverse like could explain like all the data, maybe as well as fine tuning could um, just maybe, even if we grant it, like think about like how costly the theory is to say like, well, like, like every possible universe exists or there's like 10 to the 500 universes out there. Like that seems very complex and there's a lot of moving parts there in your necessary um, foundation or whatever um, compared to like the theistic hypothesis, which seems pretty simple, uh, especially compared to like a multiverse kind of look at things. 
Yeah, one, one writer has written about the multiverse, one science writer, a non-believing science writer wrote about the multiverse that a theory that explain, a theory that proposes everything explains nothing. And, mm. and that's really what it is. It's saying, you know, everything can occur and yet, you know, so it really has no explanatory power. Now, again, I, I'm not saying there's not a multiverse. I don't know. There might be. But if so, if we're going to make statements about what that tells us about the fine tuning, we need to understand what that multiverse actually is first. Whenever we've discovered more about the universe, it's become more finely tuned, not less. Even the size of the universe, as we've already talked about briefly, it may be that we someday discover a multiverse and it actually points to a higher level of fine tuning, not less. So for him to throw out the multiverse, or throw out black holes that are all speculative and say this solves the problem is, is naive, it's speculative, it's wishful thinking, it's atheism of the gaps. And until we actually find those universes and models, it may be that the multiverse gives stronger evidence for fine-tuning rather than less. Hmm. That's super helpful. Um, so we have one more clip here that we're going to play in response. And then I think we'll have time for a little bit of Q&A if you have questions relating um, to what we've been talking about here. Uh, we plan to go for about an hour. Um, so we'll go into this last clip and respond. And then we'll do a little bit of Q&A if there's questions or super chats or anything like that. An incomprehensibly tiny speck floating through vast emptiness and chaos. Are we really so arrogantly egocentric as to look up at the night sky and assume that it's all made for us? Is that really a crutch we need to make it through the day? Starting in extreme conditions, humans and our ancient non-human ancestors adapted to this planet as it cooled. Those of us who couldn't live long enough to reproduce were lost along the way. We have evolved to survive here, fine-tuning ourselves to this planet, not the other way around. We have fought tooth and nail to get to where we are. That's all the more reason to cherish this life and not squander it or destroy the only home we have. I put out a video like so here's the last clip where he talks about um first just kind of like uh it's so like egocentric to kind of base this kind of like worldview around ourselves and then he talks about like oh we just evolved um so what are your thoughts here dr strauss in this this final clip we're looking at? yeah it's funny he says we're not very important but look at how great we are because we've survived right <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting um yeah again he's just wrong i mean it is true that we adapt to our environment there's no question about that but the possible environments that carbon-based life, the only possible life in this universe can adapt to are extremely, extremely narrow. You cannot have carbon-based life, you know, living on Venus, it can't happen. And so, you know, for him to make that claim is just, it's wrong, it's incorrect. It is true we've adapted to this environment, but carbon-based life, the only kind of life possible in this universe cannot adapt to anything but extremely narrow ranges. Um, and then I find it interesting that, you know, we're not, we're nothing important, but we've, we've survived. So we really are important. And then you've missed the last part of the clip where he pleads people to send him money. And I really want, you know, I do videos and I give talks and I don't plead anybody for anybody to give me any money. You're not going to give me any money for doing this. Right. I mean, it's just, you wonder what, what's the motivation. If he really is passionate about this, why does he have to ask people for money? I don't know the answer to that. And so, you know, um, I found that interesting. After all this, he says, you know, I'm, he, he, he has a, yeah, I won't go into that. But anyway, again, this, this idea that the only reason we can live on earth is because we've adapted to it is just ridiculous. It discounts everything we know about the requirements necessary to support um, higher life forms based on carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, it's just, it's naive. It, it, there's, there's a partial truth to that one.
The partial truth is yes, we, will, we do adapt to this very narrow range of possibilities uh, of an Earth-like planet. I think it's helpful to remember here, like with the fine tuning argument, it's not just dealing with like, um, say like, just like having a planet with life, but it's like, we need all these things to go right to have a possibility first of a planet with life. Like we need like these complex molecules and like the right size universe and the right size initial conditions. Like all these things need to go right to where we get to this earth in the first place. And then more things have to go right. Like the fine tuning isn't just like one thing. There's many different factors at play here with regards to the fine tuning argument. Absolutely. There, there's one other thing he said that's related that he talked about maybe the universe has expanded and contracted and there's a lot of universes, but there's something called the entropy problem of the universe that basically discounts that. Sean Carroll even admits that. He says it's very hard to solve the entropy problem. In one of his um, blogs or something, he lists five possibilities for the origin of the universe and four of them he discounts uh, as a thoughtful atheist because they don't solve the entropy problem. And the, the, this, um, everything we know from science about an expanding, collapsing universe can't work due to entropy. Now, again, you can speculate maybe there's physics that we don't know, atheism of the gaps that would solve the problem, but the problem remains. So again, this was a naive statement when he throws out the fact he, he doesn't understand the met much research that has been done on the possibility or lack of possibility of an oscillating universe. Mm. Um, there's a couple questions here. Um, a question from Jono. I'm not completely sure what's going on here. I don't know if you do, Dr. Strauss. Um, but he says, do you view the argument um, with regards to fine-tuning? Is it like a C or a P inductive argument? I'm not super familiar with um, the term. I'm not either. I don't know. I mean, we could Google it and see what uh, <laughs> C and P conduct argument are. But you're again, I apologize that I don't know just with that terminology, what it is. I know what an inductive argument is. Mm -hmm. But why don't we go to another um, question? And in the meantime, I will look up C or P inductive arguments <laughs> and just see what I can find. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm, I feel kind of ashamed because I was just talking about how I was reading Swinburne um, and the existence of God. And I'm like, wait, I don't know what he's talking about here. Jonah. Um, so I'm just curious then, I think kind of related to his question then would be like, what is your favorite formulation of the fine tuning argument? Like there's different kinds, like you'll have like William Lane Craig, who be like the fine tuning is due to like chance necessity or design. Um, and he rules out the other two and so it's design. Then there's like more like um, kind of like inductive arguments where like this just supports theism over atheism. Um, like what's your preferred formulation of the fine tuning argument? Um, I, I guess it's similar to some of those that, um, Holy Kool-Aid played at the beginning of his video. It's that we can understand what is necessary for a universe that can support life. It would be possible that there would be a broad range of parameters that would give a life-friendly universe, but in fact, there's not. The, all the, pra the parameters are extremely narrow, infinitesimal, compared to the parameter space available. And so um, I would say that to me, the, the best fine tuning argument, the way I would say the fine tuning argument is that the parameter space required uh, for a life friendly universe um, is extremely narrow. Hmm. Okay, that's super helpful. Um, Jono in the chat kind of clarified his question with regards to um, the fancy philosophy terminology. And he says, um, as in right. to the fine-tuning argument, does it raise the probability of theism above what it previously was, or does it make theism more probable than not theism? Um, yeah. Right. So I, I know what he's talking about. This has to do with 
um, posterior probabilities and Bayesian statistics and things like that. And um, there, there are articles out there that I've read. I won't, you know, I could tell you who the authors are and all that talk about Bayesian probability and how fine tuning makes theism less probable. And, and I have um, real problems with the way those arguments are framed. For instance, one of them says that a life-friendly universe is the same as a finely tuned universe, and that's just not the case. A life-friendly universe could have very large parameter space in which life could exist, and a finely tuned universe has a small parameter space. So as a, as, even as a posterior probability, I think this makes theism much more likely. Um, now, the, the argument against that, again, I try to read both sides, is, is similar to what Kool, um, Holy Kool-Aid said in his video, that if there was a God, he could actually make a universe that is inhospitable to life and still, by his um, miracles, let life exist. And that's mm -hmm. true. A God, a God could do that. But that is inconsistent with the biblical God, which we believe as Christians. The biblical God says that he sets up a universe that shows his character. And his character is shown by things, I believe, by things like the scale of the universe shows his grandness. The fact that it's finely tuned shows that he cares about the life in the universe. And so, yes, he could do that. But if you read the characteristics of the biblical God, he shows himself in nature by the fact that nature works so well, not by the fact that he does miracles. So yes, you could make a case that a deity could have a larger, could, could hold a universe together and make it life friendly, even if the physical laws didn't, but that would be inconsistent with the biblical God, which we believe in. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. And I just kind of wonder, like thinking about his proposal again in the beginning where he talks about like God sustaining, like maybe like some sort of life universe from any universe with regards to like some just like, like chaotic, like stuff going on in terms of like the natural realm of things. And it's like, that doesn't seem like, like a very orderly, regular universe. It just seems kind of chaotic, which is going to kind of like throw science out the window and all these things. Um, so I think that's about all the questions we have. So a lot of people watching, but not many questions. Um, so Dr. Strauss, do you have anything like last, last things you want to say with regards to like the fine tuning argument and such before we start to wrap things up here? Well, I think there's another thing to bring up. The reason that I believe in the biblical God doesn't boil down to one argument. It doesn't boil down to just the fine tuning or just the origin or just the rarity of the planet Earth that seems to make humans special or just the use of mathematics to describe the universe. Those are some of the scientific arguments. But the reason I believe in the biblical God is a holistic view. It, it, and you've kind of said it in some of our conversations, it best answers the totality of what I view in life. Um, C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist and became a Christian, one of his reasons was the moral argument. Humans have a sense of morality, and where does that come from? Um, he also had the argument that humans have a sense of purpose and destiny, and C.S. Lewis argued that all of our longings can be filled. We, we get hungry and we can eat. We have sexual desires and there's sex, but we also have this longing for purpose and destiny. Where did that come from if it can't be fulfilled? And so you look at sociology, what are the problems in the world and what are the solutions? And you look at um, uh, the difference, you know, there's, there's a discussion about is the mind the same as the brain? And, and you look at this holistic view 
And it's like a, a court case. You build a case that says the most probable explanation, not just to what I see in science, but what I see in sociology and morality and human history um, is the biblical God. And it's that strong case that causes me to say this is the most probable um, worldview that explains everything I see. I've been sat on many juries in my life and, and there's never a single piece of evidence that says, okay, now I know whether the defendant is guilty or innocent. It's a preponderance of evidence or you know uh, something like that. You, you build up a case and Jay Warner Wallace talks about this in his books like um, uh, Cold Case Christianity because he was an ex um, forensic scientist you know, or forensic mm -hmm. detective. Um, and so uh, that's all I would say is, you know, I think there's great arguments for the fine tuning. I think there are problems, you know, you can bring up issues with fine tuning there. Are, you can speculate yourself out of fine tuning. You can propose physics we don't know of that might somehow uh, get rid of the fine tuning, but that's not the only argument for God. And I know those who disagree with the theistic idea like Holy Kool-Aid would say, of course, there are other arguments reasons he disagrees but you know mm -hmm. if you're going to if you're going to try to debunk fine-tuning you better do better than this video because th this video had nothing in it that debunked fine-tuning um and uh, again i've read a lot of article a lot of stuff on debunking fine-tuning it's one of the hardest things to actually find a good case against and, and we could talk about other things we could talk about um the analogy of water in a puddle which is a terrible analogy but all these things mm -hmm. that try to debunk fine tuning. It, it's really, it's a challenge. Um, this is why those thoughtful people who don't agree with it really end up migrating to a, a multiverse. Mm -hmm. Well, I thank you so much for your time, Dr. Strauss. It's been so much fun and I appreciate your expertise and your willingness to come on and talk about this. And yeah, fine tuning is really interesting to think about. And there's so much going on here. And we're talking about like the cosmos and this giant universe that we find ourselves in and trying to understand like our place in it. And there's just so many um, really interesting questions that come from this. So to wrap things up, could you just say like, if people want to like follow you and your work or things like that, um, how can they follow you? Yeah, I, I write a blog, although I haven't written in a long time. I have a real job, but um, Michael, uh, Michael, www.michaelgstrauss.com. Um, I've got a YouTube channel. You can look up where I've made some videos. I have a book out called the Creator Revealed that talks about how the origin of the universe and the biblical story of the origin of the universe actually fit well together, how the Big Bang fits with the biblical story. And so, um, yeah, you know, again, I, I do this out of a passion for people to understand um, how good science really does support the case for the biblical God. Uh, and so, yeah, there are ways you can kind of see what I've got out there on blogs and YouTube and stuff like that. Well, that's great. And I appreciate you coming on. And I thank everyone um, tuned in today, John and Jono and Smokey and David and everyone else. It's been so much fun. I uh, appreciate you all tuning in. Um, and if you're always new to the channel, encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. But thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, have a good one and God bless. Thanks, Zach.